This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I'm back with another true crime story to lull you to sleep or perhaps to give you nightmares. Over the course of the last few years that I've hosted this podcast, I've covered several cases of a suspicious death that had been ruled a suicide initially. We've talked about Brianna Nugent Nix, who was found in her bathroom deceased from an apparent overdose and the suspicious evidence found and her partner's behavior. We've talked about Ellen Greenberg, found dead in her apartment with over 20 stab wounds, some located in places on her body that she couldn't have possibly reached herself. Her death was initially labeled a suicide, but her family fought and continues to fight to have her case reopened and looked at by a fresh set of eyes. Humans make mistakes. The men and women who work in law enforcement, they're human. They don't always get it right. They can't always get it right. And while no one wants to believe that their loved one would take their own life, they certainly also don't wish for another individual to violently steal their loved one's life away. When I first came across this story, and a big thank you to Aaron for sharing it with me, I knew it was one that I wanted to talk about. I felt like it was one that I needed to talk about. 12-year-old Sean Doherty was discovered hanging from a swing set in his backyard earlier this year. He was dressed in his stepfather's clothing. He was shoeless and with his glasses missing. His death has been ruled a suicide by the local police force. But once you hear all of the suspicious circumstances and details, you might wonder if this was really the right call. Did Sean take his own life or did someone else take it? We don't know, but I believe with all of the information that we have, it's certainly worth taking a closer look. So I'm going to start this episode with a quote by Sean's stepfather, Jared, who said, we're not investigators. We're just parents that lost an amazing kid. No matter what, no one can argue that he doesn't deserve a second shot. So let's jump right in. And I want to start by saying that the majority of the information that I found on this case has been pulled directly from the Facebook page called What Happened to Sean, which is run by his family. I highly encourage you to check out their Facebook page and to read their words directly. It's their story to tell of their experience. I'm just sharing some details here with the hopes of getting some more eyes on it. 
Sean Doherty was born on November 8, 2009, to his mother, Ramona Rivas, and father, Timothy Doherty. Though his parents were no longer together, he had a really good relationship and a close-knit connection with his family. Friends have described Sean as a sweet, smart, loving boy who was very empathetic, and he shared his love of life with everybody around him. He was a straight-A student, and things just came naturally for him. But he was also just your regular 12-year-old little boy who loved Star Wars, video games, and Disney. Oh, and growing up, he wanted to be president someday. No big deal. At the time of his death, he was living with his mother, his stepfather Jared, in Yorktown, Virginia, which has a population of around 70,000 people. Also living in the home was his big sister Maria and two younger half-brothers, Ethan and Hunter. Both Sean's mother and stepfather were high-ranking officers in the Air Force, so the family had moved around quite a bit. They had settled into a beautiful home on Sandalwood Lane in the community of Wythe Creek Farms just a few years ago, but now it was April of 2022 and they were getting ready to move once again, this time to the Pentagon. In fact, they had just recently sold the home and they were now renting it from the new owners until they made the big move in the next few weeks. The family was really excited for the upcoming changes. While they loved the community that they lived in and felt really safe in the immaculately kept neighborhood, they were ready for a new adventure. They didn't have any really close friends in the area who they would consider to be forever friends, so it wasn't going to be all that difficult to transition to a new home and to new schools. And I totally get that being a military wife myself. Sometimes the moves can be really sad and really difficult, and other times you're just excited for the opportunity to start over. When Sean found out about the upcoming move, he jumped up and down with excitement. He was completely stoked to be able to tell his friends that his mother worked at the Pentagon. He wanted to know if he could go inside the Pentagon and get some of the milk chocolate candies with that iconic building stamped on top. In addition to the excitement over the upcoming move, the family had just recently returned home from the vacation of a lifetime. Just the week prior, the family had spent their spring break enjoying a Disney cruise. They had so much fun that they were already preparing for their next Disney cruise to Alaska, and they had just renewed their passports. It's said that Sean in particular was super excited about this upcoming trip, which would be happening in August. Everything appeared to be looking up for Sean and for his family. But... It would all come crashing down in an instant on Thursday, April 14th, 2022. That day, it started out as any other did. There was no indication that anything might go off the rails. Sean's mother, Ramona, was out for most of the day, taking her mother and Sean's grandmother to a doctor's appointment. Sean's stepfather, Jared, was out with their second youngest son, who had an appointment, and the eldest daughter, Maria, was away at a tennis match. This meant that Sean was going to stay home and babysit his two-year-old baby brother. Ramona would say that Sean was very excited to babysit his little brother, and he took the role very seriously. The grandmother's doctor's appointment, it was only going to take around 25 minutes, and they lived in what is considered to be a very safe neighborhood. He was also a very responsible young man who, in addition to watching his brother, completed his homework, 
began to take the trash out and had a quick chat on the phone with his mom before the family all came home. And I might sound like a broken record here, but again, there was no indication of anything being out of the ordinary. Just after 4.30 p.m., Sean's sister Maria returned from her tennis match in a huge hurry because her boyfriend and her boyfriend's mother were going to be picking her up shortly to go to a lacrosse game. She tried running right into the house, but the door was locked, so she knocked and rang the doorbell. There was no answer. She called and texted Sean, who was supposed to be inside babysitting, but again, no response. She called her mother to ask where Sean was, and her mom told her that he was likely just playing video games and couldn't hear her through the door. Maria decided that she'd try to see if the back door was unlocked, but as soon as she entered the backyard, she froze in her tracks. In the backyard was her 12-year-old brother, Sean, hanging from the swing sets. He had his arms and hands bound down by his side with a belt. He was barefoot and hanging so low that his feet dragged on the ground. He had a motorcycle helmet bag over his head, which was tied around his head with a string. His glasses were found on the ground nearby, shattered. Maria ran to her little brother and tried to lift him up to relieve the pressure from his head and his neck. He was basically suspended by his chin. While she held him, she used her other hand to call 911 at around 4.54 p.m. Now this is the account given by Maria. This is exactly how she described the situation. And while of course people do make mistakes, these images are forever burned inside her mind because it was such a shocking and traumatic discovery. While Maria waited for the paramedics to arrive, she attempted to take Sean down by using three fingers to slip under the string and remove it over his head. Then she attempted to perform CPR until the medics arrived and took over the scene. Sean still had a belt wrapped tightly around his waist that held his arms down by his side. The paramedics had to remove it in order to administer shocks with the AED. And in my opinion, this one single piece of information, that belt tightly binding his arms, it's enough to take a closer look at this case. One has to wonder how the heck a 12-year-old boy hangs themselves with a bag over their head and their arms tied down. He was also missing his glasses, which his mother said he needed to wear in order to see. They were discovered broken on the ground near him. Sean was also found wearing men's clothing, that would later be identified as belonging to his stepfather. Ramona was arriving back from her appointment with her mother, only to find a large police presence, ambulance, and fire trucks parked in front of her home. She saw her daughter Maria completely distraught and the medics working on Sean, but they would not let her go anywhere near him. So she ran to Maria to get the story of what had happened, and then they both ran into the house to look for the two-year-old. Inside, Ramona found the toddler hiding beneath a pile of laundry that was on a chair. She would say he appeared to be limp, out of it, and not really himself. While she tried to gather her thoughts, she also called her husband Jared to let him know that he needed to get back home quickly because something had happened. Jared was still around 40-ish minutes away at that appointment with their son, so she also called her boss to come over because she needed help now. They were taking Sean to the hospital by ambulance, and Ramona had to follow in the first responder's fire pickup truck. 
At the hospital, she received the tragic news that her 12-year-old son, Sean, had passed away. They were never able to revive him. The family was asked to stay at a hotel for the evening while they processed the scene at the home and waited for answers as to what the hell happened to their son. The fear was that something horrible, something criminal had happened in the home, and any evidence had to be collected, photos had to be taken, and witnesses had to be interviewed. Unfortunately, none of the neighbors had any helpful information to offer. None of them had seen or heard anything coming from Sean's home. One neighbor had several security cameras that were pointed near or towards the backyard, but unfortunately, none of them worked and they hadn't in years. The investigators went through the family home and took pictures of the house as well as the backyard where Sean was found. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors fresh, never-frozen meals that are also dietitian approved No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, 
I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day because that's half the battle. And I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code NAPPER50 at factormeals.com slash NAPPER50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. They took pictures of the back swing set and began to look around and document their surroundings. The family has reported that none of these photos or findings have ever been shared with them. As of midnight that same evening, the home was cleared and the family was able to return. Right away, the family noticed some really strange things. Things that seemed out of the ordinary and like they would be important to investigators. On the kitchen counter was a bowl with a peach in it. It looked like Sean was making a snack, but then just stopped. There were also two trash bags tied up on the floor, with Sean's Crocs sitting upside down beside the bags, as if Sean had begun to take the trash out, but left them there on the floor instead. Ramona also noted two additional garbage bags that were lying on the floor, all ripped up, and she said that they appeared to be different than the ones that she kept in the home. These garbage bags had blue handles, when the bags that they owned had red handles. She would always buy them from Costco. The heat in the home was set to 85 degrees Fahrenheit or 29 degrees Celsius, which in my opinion is hot. And it's definitely higher than what the family usually kept the heat at. Upstairs, Ramona discovered Sean's underwear lying on the floor in the master bedroom. Jared's dresser drawers were also opened. This is when it became clear that Sean had been wearing Jared's clothing and had left his underwear on the floor, something that he had never done before. He never got changed in their room. Ramona didn't know what any of this meant, but she begged the underwear so that she could give it to the police for testing. Sean's jacket and flannel that he was wearing earlier that day were found hanging in the closet at the home, but the t-shirt and shorts that he had been wearing were never found. So where did his clothing go? Sean's little brother, the one that he had been babysitting, who was discovered hiding in the pile of clothes, well, he was now telling a strange story. He said that Sean's friend had been at the house that day and was punching him, and then he made these punching motions with his arms. It's never been confirmed if anyone was at the house that day or who might have been, but this is what the two-year-old was saying, so do with that what you will. We don't know if he really saw anything, and we may never know. Two years old is way too young to really process anything, but it's definitely an interesting statement. But there was more. They discovered what looked like blood drops and a large handprint on the window of the back door, and it looked as if the handprint had some sort of film or residue on it, which really made it stand out. The family says that all of this information was shared to the police the following day, and they even came back to try to lift the fingerprints off the handprint to send them out for testing. A few weeks later, the lead investigator would tell them that they got a good print from the lift of the hand, but that there weren't any matches in the system. This is according to the family. 
A month later, when they came back for more prints, he said that there weren't any good prints lifted, and therefore there was nothing to test. This is just one of many contradictions that you'll hear in this story. The family does not know if the initial handprint was ever sent out for testing. Sean's family and the neighborhood were terrified that something so horrific could happen in their neighborhood, and the fear was that there was a murderer lurking about. They locked all of the doors, and they even propped chairs up against them for further reinforcement. People were terrified. Their initial fear of someone lurking in the shadows made the autopsy results even more shocking to Sean's family. The medical examiner's office ruled Sean's death a suicide by hanging, which immediately did not sit well with his family. In their opinion, there were too many things that pointed to another person doing this to Sean. They couldn't ignore it, and they could not accept it. First of all, they say that Sean had no history of depression or suicide, and he was a very happy child. And I've seen some conflicting information regarding this. The emergency room doctor who first worked on Sean noted that he had a history of suicidal ideations. However, the medical examiner's office wrote in his report that Sean had no history with depression or suicide. Police talked to Sean's family, his friends, and his classmates to see if maybe he was being bullied at school, which would give him a reason to take his own life. And while he did have an issue a few months ago with a couple of kids that went to his school, all of that seemed to be resolved. Investigators did take Sean's phone, his iPad, his computer to examine it, but there was never anything found on any of them related to suicide. There were no messages, nothing searched about the topic, just nothing. According to Ramona, Sean had an amazing time at Disney and was very much looking forward to their next trip. On the day of his death, he was particularly in a good mood and had just spoken to his mother on the phone about an hour prior to his body being found. And I fully understand that no parent ever wants to think that their child is so unhappy that they would take their own life, so I always take that bit of information with a grain of salt. There is a lot of misconception out there that people who are suicidal won't make plans for the future, or there will be a lot of planning involved with their death and warning signs to watch out with. But this isn't always true. We never really know what's going on inside of a person's head, and impulsive suicide is a very real thing. People make a rash, snap decision, and there's really no going back from it. However, there are many other factors in Sean's death that give me pause. Firstly, his hands being bound to his side by the belt. Maria would describe the belt as being so tight that the paramedics struggled to remove it from his body when they were working on him. She also noted that he was barefoot when she found him. However, the bottom of his feet were perfectly clean. This happened in April when the ground was still thawing out, so it's a bit strange if he walked out of there by himself that he didn't have any dirt on the soles of his feet. Still not impossible, of course. And then there was also his broken glasses, which his mother said that he absolutely needed to wear to be able to see. Without his glasses, it would have been even more difficult for him to tie that bag around his head and the belt around his arms. The bag that was on his head would turn out to be a motorcycle helmet bag that was taken out of their garage. It belonged to his stepfather. 
The string that he used has been described by the family as a shoelace and by investigators as a rope, but it would turn out to be the string from another motorcycle helmet bag also taken out of the garage. These two helmet bags had been piled up in the garage, basically ready to give away, go to the dump, go to Goodwill. The family had a lot of other things that could have been used for hanging. They were both in the military. They had ropes and whatnot that Sean could have easily used. So it's interesting that he used the string from the helmet bag. And what of the clothing that Sean was wearing? Men's clothing, which was also said to be his stepfather's clothing taken from his closet. Sean would be wearing a dress shirt, denim pants, and even his stepfather's underwear, dressed completely head-to-toe in men's wear. What does this mean, if anything? I've got to say, if this was my child, I would do exactly as Sean's family have done and push back against this labeling of a suicide, which is exactly what they've done. They have been very vocal and very public about their feelings regarding the investigation and how they believe that Sean's death was too quickly ruled to be a suicide and that a lot of things were just botched, which is absolutely fair of them to do. Their child is dead under very suspicious circumstances. They have been critical of their local police, and in turn, the police pushed back, releasing a video on Facebook that I can only describe as cold-hearted. I'm going to play a clip of it now for you. Recent statements have caused concern in the community that the death of a 12-year-old on April the 14th 2022 has not been fully investigated by the sheriff's office and that there may be a killer in our area that poses a threat. Nothing could be further from the truth. It has been the long-standing policy of the York Precocious Sheriff's Office to not release information relating to cases of suicide, particularly those cases that involve children. We do everything within our power to preserve the privacy of the grieving family. We take these matters very seriously evaluate all evidence, and consider all possibilities. The York Precocious Sheriff's Office is aware of a recent social media site created to provide the public with theories surrounding the death of this 12-year-old. Much of the information being posted to this social media site is opinion, innuendo, and fabrication, which is not consistent with the evidence that was collected by Sheriff's Office investigators during their investigation. Once that evidence was collected, it was submitted to the Department of Forensic Science for evaluation and later to the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. By law, in Virginia, it is the Chief Medical Examiner's responsibility to determine the manner and cause of death which they, the Chief Medical Examiner's Office, determined to be a suicide. In addition, the Sheriff's Office met with the family on multiple occasions and gave them the opportunity to discuss this investigation. Additionally, an offer was made to have a group meeting after the findings of the Chief Medical Examiner's Office that would include the family, members of the York Precocious Sheriff's Office, and the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. As of this date, the family has not expressed interest in scheduling this meeting. Instead, they chose to post this video publicly. There were several key points that were made in this video that the Sheriff's Office will address. First, in the video, the mother said, they have told me a few times that they really don't know how to investigate this kind of murder case because it's really complicated. The implication being, we the York Precocious Sheriff's Office. That statement is absolutely not true and was never made to this mother. 
Our investigators are recognized in the Hampton Roads area as professional, caring, competent major crimes investigators. They have investigated and solved numerous cases that include homicides, suicides, rapes, and robberies. They have several decades of investigative experience within the division. The investigation divisions consist of graduates of the Virginia Forensic Science Academy, which has certified them as crime scene experts. Along with processing the scene and interviewing witnesses and the family, investigators interviewed a significant number of people to include surrounding neighbors, lawn care personnel, school officials, friends of the 12-year-old, and other community members. The results of these initial interviews did not identify any potential suspects. We went back to the home on May 20th, 2022 at the request of the family. During that visit, the mother pointed out a red stain on the wall in the upstairs area of the home. Investigators photographed that stain, that stain on that date. Later, investigators reviewed the photographs that were taken on April the 14th, 2022, the day of the tragedy, and that stain was not present on that wall on April the 14th, 2022. In the mother's video, she states that her two-year-old child witnessed the events that occurred in the house. During a recorded interview on April the 14th, 2022, between the mother and sheriff's office investigators, she stated when she left the house the afternoon, that afternoon to take her mother to an appointment, the child was asleep. When she returned home after the tragedy had been discovered, she is quoted as saying to the sheriff's office investigator, quote, thank God he was still asleep, meaning the two-year-old. The information that she stated in her video about the two-year-old has never been disclosed to the sheriff's office. In the mother's video, she states there was mud in the backyard, even refers to it as swampy, and she noted that there was no dirt on the 12-year-old's feet. Images from the day of the incident on April the 14th show that the grass was not wet and the yard was not swampy. There have been many statements on this website regarding the alleged staging of the scene. The photo of the backyard displayed on the social media site shows a swing set and a chair. It's important to note that the swings that are wrapped over the top post of the swing set and the chair were moved by York County Fire and Life Safety personnel in order to create enough space to render life-saving measures. The chair was moved from its original location under the swing by Fire and Life Safety personnel where the child, the 12-year-old was hanging, to the front of the swing set and the swings were moved to provide workspace. Our investigation determined that the chair was originally located on the deck at the rear of the home and was moved to the swing set area. Also during the course of our investigation, DNA samples were collected from the cord that the 12-year-old was found suspended from. This cord was not a shoestring. It came from a motorcycle helmet bag that belonged to the stepfather that had been previously located in the garage. The 12-year-old's DNA was the only DNA found on this cord. Specifically, the DNA swabs were taken from the knot placed in that cord and the only DNA on that knot belonged to the 12-year-old. In the video, there's an allegation that members of the YPSO, the York Pocotian Sheriff's Office, washed blood from the 12-year-old. At no point did any member of the Sheriff's Office clean or remove any blood from the scene or the child. At the hospital, investigators placed bags over the 12-year-old's hands prior to him being transported to the medical examiner's office.
This is common practice to prevent the loss of any potential trace evidence. Based on the fact that the family was telling us that neighbors had information that they were providing to the family about possible suspects, our investigators went back to interview those neighbors and none provided any additional information or new investigative leads. There is a statement in the mother's video about the unusual location of the 12-year-old's underwear. The clothing that the 12-year-old was wearing when he was located that day belonged to his stepfather to include the stepfather's shirt, pants, belt, and stepfather's underwear. The 12-year-old's underwear were found in the same room where his stepfather's clothes were kept. Several theories were presented to the sheriff's office investigators by the family. The first theory provided to the family about what happened that day stated that they believed that this was a burglary and during the burglary their 12-year-old was sexually assaulted and murdered. However, sheriff's office investigators found no evidence of an intruder and laboratory and medical evaluations of forensic evidence sent to the laboratory found no signs of sexual assault. The second theory presented by the family was that this was carried out as a military-type operation directed at them, the family, due to their rank in the United States Air Force. And finally, they identified three different people based solely on speculation that they frequented the neighborhood. All three of these people were located, and Sheriff's Office investigators eliminated them as persons of interest in this incident. We did not address every inconsistency or fabrication from the social media site. We conducted a thorough, professional, and exhaustive investigation. There is nothing whatsoever to indicate that there is a, a killer in our community. As I stated at the beginning of this video, it is our policy not to discuss these issues in public, particularly when they involve children. However, the social media site has caused great concern within our community. We still extend an invitation to the family to meet with members of this agency and the Office of the Chief of Medical Examiner to discuss the results of the autopsy and our investigation. Of course, the police also have the right to clear their name and to honor the integrity of the investigation, but the tone of the video is very unsympathetic towards a grieving family, in my opinion at least. In that video, they state that the family has not taken the opportunity to meet with them and with the medical examiner's office to go through all of their findings. I'm not sure exactly why this hasn't happened already, but I really do hope in the future that there is an opportunity for this to take place. Although I think it will be difficult at this point because there is a level of trust that has been lost. In the video, the police officer also clarifies a few things, like that the yard was not muddy that day, which would explain Sean's clean feet. They said that they tested that rope that Sean used to hang himself for DNA and only found Sean's DNA on the part of the knot. They talk about a blood mark that was found in the house, and they say that it was found in the home later, but that it wasn't present on the day that they investigated. They say that they placed bags over Sean's hands to preserve evidence like they've done in other cases. They also say that there was no evidence of an intruder or any sign that Sean was sexually assaulted. There were also conflicting statements that had been previously made by Sean's sister Maria and the police. She said his feet were touching the ground when she found him, while the police say that there was a chair that had been moved from the deck to be under Sean when he hung himself. 
They say that they moved it out of the way to perform life-saving measures, but there was a chair there. And at that point, I mean, I don't think it really matters. He could have stood up on the chair. Whether there was a chair there or not, he could have stood up at any point if he wanted to. He was that close to the ground or at least the chair. They had a lot to say, but what they did not touch upon were the things that I really wanted to hear about, like the belt that held Sean's arms down. I want them to explain that. How do investigators believe that he pulled all of this off on his own without help with his hands tied down by a belt? There are a lot of questions here that just don't seem to have answers, and I think that is the biggest problem. The police have ruled this a suicide, and that might be true. But I really do believe that there is enough reasonable doubt here to take a closer look. That's why the family has launched their social media campaign and have hired a private investigator. They just want to know what happened to their son because no matter how you look at it, it is not normal or not typical for a seemingly happy 12-year-old little boy to get dressed up in his stepfather's clothing and hang himself from his backyard with his hands bound to his waist with a belt and a bag over his head. That's not normal. That just doesn't happen. There are some other theories that they've put forward. First one being, perhaps Sean was targeted due to their high-ranking military affiliation. Some people might roll their eyes at that one, but it's most definitely not out of the question. Another theory is that there is a killer close by in their neighborhood, which is why they've set up a surveillance camera outside of their home. There has been an individual spotted visiting a makeshift memorial that's under some trees near their driveway, and they believe this person may know something or may have some unresolved guilt, thus being the reason that they keep returning to the memorial. We just don't know, and really, that's my point. In my opinion, this is not an open and shut case. There is a lot more to investigate here, and a lot of what has been collected and documented has not been shown to or given to the family. At this point, the police are pretty much calling this a closed case of suicide, but they have not officially closed the case, which would allow Sean's family to have another police agency review it. In my opinion, justice means finding the truth, and I'm not sure we have it. So if you'd like to learn more about Sean's story, please visit the Facebook page, What Happened to Sean? They also have a petition to the Virginia Bureau of Investigation, the VBI, as well as to the FBI in the hopes that they will take over the case. I'll have the link to all of that in my show notes if you'd like to sign it and find out some more information. I'm going to end this episode with a clip from Sean's mother, Ramona, because again, this is her story that I'm sharing, so it's important to hear it right from her mouth. We just had amazing vacation. We just got back on Sunday. It was the reward for the kids. He had got all A's. He was in a very good spirit. It was like a regular day. <laughs> and my mom um, comes out, she's like in a hurry. Um, the doctor's office called and said, hey, uh, she needs an EKG. But the appointment is only 25 minutes. It's a safe neighborhood. And she said, mom, don't worry, I got it. You know, I, I love babysitting. He was reading his book later, I could see. He had uh, pulled it out. Mom, Sean is not answering the door. Police and ambulances just went behind fire trucks. And I was like, my stomach dropped. 
the belt was tied around my son. Oh, they said, oh, he probably tied it himself and all that. So why there was no DNA on the belt? Four weeks later, taking fingerprints, four weeks later, after we raised hell, four weeks later, going around the neighbors, asking if they saw anything. I screamed in the hospital saying, my son was murdered. There's something really wrong. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper, or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, and that's all one word. If you're watching on YouTube, I'd love if you could give me a thumbs up and subscribe. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind, especially in the comments. Bye.